From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. We are in the middle of our summertime limited series, Camp is Cancelled. That's right, today we are on part two of Camp is Cancelled, where we're digging in into the alternate history behind unmade Friday the 13th sequels. And today, we have a doozy. We are covering Nick and Costa's Friday the 13th 3D, aka Friday the 13th Part 13. Call it what you will, I'm excited to dig into it, and we are going to welcome back our co-host for this miniseries. Jinx, Jinx, how's it going? 
Josh, how are you? Thanks so much for having me back on. I uh, I cannot wait to dive into this particular project. I think it's going to be a blast. I cannot wait as well. And I'm sure everyone remembers you from last week and the other 30,000 episodes you've done. But do me the favor and just give yourself a bit of an introduction. Well, Josh, they damn well better. But if they don't, <laughs> I'll just let them know that I am a writer for Bloody Disgusting. I pin a column called Phantom Limbs that's all about unproduced horror sequels and remakes. I'm a podcaster on Scream Addicts, which is uh, just now finishing up its year and a half long run on Hammer Horror Films. And uh, other than that, I'm just I'm happy to guest on people's podcasts, man. Yeah, yeah. Have, have them on because everyone loves Jinx when I let them out of the cellar. So today, as I mentioned, we are digging into Nick Costa's Friday the 13th 3D script. He leaked this himself onto the internet. Um, I believe it was around 2017 when this project was officially given the axe by Platinum Dunes. And so we're going to dig into our thoughts about this pretty... I'm Okay, I'm not going to give my feelings that. We're going to dig into our thoughts about the script. We're going to sort of speculate onto why this specific... Um, project was not made and we're just gonna run through it but jinx my first question for you is who is nick and tosca and tosca uh and tosca and tosca and tosca let's call him nick okay jinx who is nick uh, uh, Nick is one hell of a writer, is who he is, Josh. He <laughs> mm-hmm. is uh, perhaps best known, would you say best known as being the creator and showrunner of Channel Zero, which yep. is a uh, a show, an anthology series from sci-fi that I absolutely adore. I think it's one of the best damn horror shows in the last two decades. Um, it, it's a crime that it only ran for four seasons and Mm -hmm. four seasons sounds like a lot in a way, but it was actually only like four, six episode long seasons. So we only got like 24 episodes total. Mm -hmm. It's not fair that we haven't gotten any more. He's a brilliant writer. Uh, He also executive produced uh, Chucky. And so I think, you know, hats off to him for that because damn it, that was so great. Uh, They really nailed Chucky like that. They just got that first season. So correct yeah they they nailed exactly what a tv extension to a big screen well previously big screen and eventually straight to dvd you know franchise should be that's what i love about chucky not to digress but that's what we do uh (laughs) you know chucky has gone from the big screen to you know sort of home video to you know uh television you know and streaming rather but I, I love that that character has remained in canon and in continuity, you know, from film to film mm-hmm. to film. And, and I consistent, if, like truly consistent. Yes. Yeah. It's one big story, which I think is brilliant. And, you know, hats off to Antosca for producing hats off to uh, Don Mancini for just killing it, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. well over three decades. So, uh, yeah, just people out there, if you haven't yet, watch Chucky, watch Chucky. already. And I like to say it because it's a, a little bit controversial, but it's also true. I think my favorite Chucky movie is Curse of Chucky, which is where they really start to define, you know, what Chucky looks like today. That mixture of violent, a little scary, but just truly camp. Yeah. I, you know, I, there isn't a single iteration of that character that I dislike. Oh, um, there's one for me. <laughs> oh, no. Which one? Go well, ahead. Does it count the reboot? 
Oh, no, I don't think it does because that's not really, I mean, it's, it's not, not really, it's, a totally it's not different. in Canada, it's not in continuity. It doesn't, Mancini didn't have anything to do with it, so we don't have to count it. I will say this. Mm-hmm. I actually did have fun with that movie. I think that its biggest mistake oh. is if, you know, if you're changing the origin, if you're kind of changing the look of the doll, if you're changing so much anyway, go ahead and change the names of the characters. Don't call them Chucky, call it child's play. And then at some point, if people had really dug that, they could have done a kick-ass crossover at some point, but they didn't do that. And they called him Chucky anyway. And it's just kind of like, Oh, what's the point though? No, no, you're right. That, that it doesn't even exist. So how can we even talk about it? That's crazy of us. Um, to get back into our good friend Nick, did, did you mention that he wrote the film Antlers, the Guillermo del Toro produced um, um, Carrie Russell venture? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, okay. That. I thought maybe you did. I've, I haven't seen it no, I've, myself. I've, no, I have. Oh, okay. I think your tone sounds familiar from what I've heard in this world. But he also wrote episodes of Teen Wolf, which means very little to me. May I um, say one thing about Antlers, though? Please. I would love to read his script because uh, mm. here's the thing. And I, I know I am in the minority here. I understand that. I get it. And I, <laughs> I don't mean to sling poo this man's way, but just in the interest of being completely honest, um, I'm not a big fan of Scott Cooper. And I, you know, everyone's kind of nuts about out of the furnace and crazy heart and, you know, I just, I don't get it. And I think Black Mass was kind of a bore and Hostels I didn't even watch. I just wasn't feeling it. Antlers, I wanted to give him a chance, but every movie of his, it's sort of, it's, it, it. Drab, kind of boring. Drags and it feels like he kind of misses it every time. He just, I, God bless him. He can shoot a pretty picture. He can get good performances, but when it comes to telling a compelling story, it just doesn't work. And when it comes to Antlers, it's not at all. It's not even remotely scary. The fucking trailer to that movie was scarier than what the film itself wound up being. That's too bad. If there's anything that Nick Antosca can do, he can write a scary fucking tale. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to lay the failures of antlers at, uh, at Antosca's feet here. So no, I'll, I'll take, I'll take it. It was my fault. I could have done better. Um, he also, our friend Nick, I, I don't know if we touched base on this, uh ep brand new cherry flavor that limited horror series over on netflix haven't seen it here are good things i really want to see it i have not seen it yet i actually i was aware of the show i don't think that i knew that it was him and now that i Mm. do i gotta tell you i'm i'm gonna watch it i hear really really good things but just like channel zero there's not very much of it this one i think was a more of a purposeful limited series but there's probably like six episodes and that's what we get but we should check it out yeah, I uh, I gotta tell you, when it comes to him, I uh, I it's a testament to how good of a writer he is because uh, literally the first time I ever heard the man's name and what it was in conjunction with, I already had a bone to pick with him. Uh, and this is gonna be this is gonna be a weird story, but I'll keep it quick. Um, so the first season of um, uh, Channel Zero adapted much as every season did it adapted a uh, creepy pasta, and the very first one that it did was a story called Candle Cove. And the cool thing about Candle Cove for me was that it is set in a small, sleepy Southern Ohio town called Ironton, Ironton, Ohio, which was literally right next door to where I lived up there, where I was born and raised. Like I could pick up a rock, throw it and hit Ironton. And I thought, 
oh my God, this creepypasta, this, this story is set in a place that I know, even though the writer was like from uh, uh, California, could not track down any connection the writer of the original creepypasta had with the area. I don't know if he just threw a damn dart at a map or what the hell. But nevertheless, I thought it was amazing that, you know, such a cool horror story was going to be set in Ironton. And then when it was made, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be like the series and they're going to set it in Ironton. Of course, they're not going to shoot it in Ironton. That's fine. That's cool. You know, whatever. Uh, but it's it's just cool that they're going to set it there and they're going to call it that. The show calls the place Iron Hill, oh, which is no. not even a place <laughs> in Ohio. And I was just kind of like, <laughs> damn you, son of a bitch come on like why you know and uh so i i was ready to shake my fist at uh, anybody who had anything to do with that decision and you know the show wound up being brilliant so uh so i forgave it that's i can feel your pain honestly i would understand that 100 percent. can i tell you a story that nobody's gonna care about when i was in writing school we all had to pitch like a web series concept and then a few of them we like made an episode of with the class. And so my pitch was like my sort of take on an anthology show kind of based on creepy pastas. And oh. I called it spooky salad. Cause that was my version of creepy pasta. <laughs> I stand by that title to this day, to be honest with you. So I love it. I love it. It's a, it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Creepy pastas are so, you know, uh, so creepy and well, huh. Uh, <laughs> Especially but, back in 2015 uh, when they were like, you know, had a bit of a, oh, they felt a little more real. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm ready, damn it, for Channel Zero to come back. We, we need more. Yeah. I, come on, Shudder. Like, be heroes. Shudder. Guys, listen. We know you're listening. They may be. Who knows? Um, yeah. So I think we, in my opinion, summed up our good friend Nick to the best of our abilities. Oh, my God. Did you hear that? I did not. I just heard a very loud, scary sound in my earphones. And I've, honest to God, I have been on edge since fucking reading the script earlier today. Well, make your peace, Josh. I'm literally scared right now. I'll be fine. (laughs) Okay. Should I keep this in? We'll see. Josh, if you're alive when you're editing this tomorrow. Hey, do you have any sort of like... uh... Do you have any friends that, you know, uh, uh, some friends, like really close friends know that like if we die an untimely death, you know, they need to just, uh, you know, find our computer and maybe, you know, wipe our history. Um, yeah, yeah, please. But, uh, please, but, if you're listening. But no, in your great. case, like I, you need to have a friend who knows that if you ever get killed in the middle of recording a podcast, they need to know how to save that audio and get that recorded and put up because there would be no more epic way for a horror podcaster to go oh, out than actually getting killed. <laughs> no, don't say that. Whilst I'm recording scared. it. I'm literally scared right now. But you know, yeah, that would be great. And you know what? Zencaster, which is how I record, does hold on to files. So let's say my computer just like exploded right now because Jason Voorhees like attacked both of us at once. I think we could still get the file. Oh my god. Okay, I'm fine. Are you fine? I feel okay. God damn it, Nick. What have you done to me? So I think I'm gonna brave and jump back into it today. I was literally taking my dog out to pee before we started recording and I was like, I don't feel safe and I blame this topic. So before we get into how we feel about the script specifically and maybe get into more in-depth details about what actually happens in the story, I thought maybe we could give a little bit of a preview about what this project was all about. 
we were talking off air that this was likely going to be a collaboration between Nick and Costa and director David Bruckner of the Nighthouse fame, and that they were developing it together before the shit hit the fan. Do you want to just give people like a light little brief reminder of who David Bruckner is? Yes, David Bruckner is a pretty damned great filmmaker. Um, he's responsible for uh, oh uh, the Signal, which is that great sort of anthology. Well, he's responsible for I believe a segment or two of that uh, anthology mm-hmm. that came out back, and I believe it was two thousand six. Uh, he directed Amateur Night, which is that great short in the original VHS anthology. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he eventually, you know, moving past uh, his affiliation with, uh, you know, Paramount in, in trying to develop a couple of different Friday the 13th movies, uh, he would go on to direct The Ritual, which is mm-hmm. a fantastic movie that you can find on Netflix mm-hmm. based on an Adam Neville novel, which is uh, great. He would go on to direct uh, The Night House, which was written by um, Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski. Uh, and the three of them are currently collaborating on a is it a sequel is it a remake is we it don't a reboot know. we don't know what it is but they're doing a hellraiser and i just like the casting and some of the details that have been leaked i as a longtime clive barker fan i just cannot wait to see what they've done with that uh me too that me property. too so I, i'm not 100 certain but i do believe clive barker is executive or producing officially in some way so i love that he is he's been mm-hmm. the guy who's sort of uh you know after the franchise ran off the rails he's he's tried to spearhead like various attempts at at, at a redo and so if he's finally giving something like his stamp of approval which i don't think he's done for a hellraiser movie in it's a good sign 27 years maybe uh at least since number three or four yeah so i'm 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 looking forward to it i really am yeah me too i'm excited Uh, we keep hearing hulu's gonna give it to us in 2022 2022 is coming to a, an end, so I really hope we are going to see it before the year is up. I thought I had heard Halloween, so... I feel like every... You know, I guess when it comes to theatrical releases, we're starting to, like, see the marketing rollouts for stuff. But maybe for things that are going directly to streaming, trailers and promo will start coming out closer to the fall. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I, you know, and especially streaming is weird. You know, when you uh, totally. when you start promoting a theatrical film, you see a teaser trailer like a year in advance. You see yeah. a full length trailer like six months in advance, and then you start seeing like loads of TV spots and whatnot leading up to that release. When it comes to streaming, I mean, they <laughs> will drop a trailer two weeks before the damn thing is available yeah. to watch. Well, Beyonce, so. that son of a bitch, and it'll still do well. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? what i mean by that i i do (laughs) okay i didn't know i don't know straights um yeah (laughs) so this is a nick bruckner co pro and we wish we could have seen it to my knowledge so the script was leaked online by mr nick himself in 2015 no 2017 even though the script itself was written in 2015 and he dropped it online after, I guess, this iteration was officially given the axe by Paramount and Platinum Dunes. Part of the rumor mill to why it was officially given the axe was the uh, failure financially and critically of Rings, the third American Ring film that came out around that time. 
But I'd also really have to guess that the infamous Friday the 13th legal case lawsuit must have played into it as well. Yeah, I mean, I I would hope that it was more that than the Rings thing, because... Rings was terrible. Honestly, that's how... Like, that's would... not anyone's fault. Like... I, 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 I... I liked Rings. I, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I have issues with it. I really do. But I like the director. I yep, I love that mythology. I, I, is it wholly successful? No, but I, I like a lot of the ideas that it's playing with. But oh why my God, the, the fuck? plane, the opening plane sequence? <laughs> so bad. Why would its <laughs> failure prevent them from making, like, it didn't lose so much money that they were out of funds to make a Friday the 13th. Did they really think like, oh, we had a horror movie that did poorly. I guess we're never making another horror movie again. That's how they are sometimes. One horror movie will fail, and then they stop making horror movies for like well, a couple of years. That's kind well, of how it is. They're dumb. They're stupid. Yeah, you hear us. You hear us. Take that, Paramount. And when you finally do give us a slasher movie, it's Scream. Really? Well done on that. Well, that made you money, so I guess. What are you waiting for? Huh? <laughs> <Give us laughs> I know you did last summer. Um, no, Not we know no, that. No, 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 no. Um, I know you did last summer. Roots go deep. Yeah. So Nick has gone on record saying that he prefers a supernatural Jason, and you can really see that in the script. And I think we're gonna dig a little deeper into it later on. But that's something about it that I really like. It's set in the 1980s. The 1980s of it all is very important to this iteration of Friday the 13th. It's smothered in 80s. There are tons of specific 1980s reference songs, and they're not obvious. They're like actually quite like great tracks, and I'm excited to talk about them specifically. Um, Jinx, how would you describe the overall tone of the script we're about to get into? I mean, the tone is, you know, it, it, it makes sense in a way that it was written for Platinum Dunes and Paramount, um, you know, and and Tosca had written the script for Bruckner to direct. Bruckner had, um, he had actually developed another Friday the 13th movie before this one. He was going to do a, uh, a found footage take on Friday the 13th which I think is actually kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, you know, they, they, I think he was drafted because he did amateur night for VHS and Paramount's thinking was, Hey, he did the found footage thing before. And we want, you know, found footage is hot and that's what all the kids love these days. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're going to bring Friday the 13th back as a found footage, you know, thing. And they developed that and then, you know, found footage cooled off. And so too did Paramount cool on found footage. And so they basically started from scratch and that's where we, come into the Antosca script. And so the fact that he was writing for Paramount and Platinum Dunes, like I see both of those in this script, you know, talking tonally, you were asking what the tone of it is. It feels like a classic Friday movie in many respects, which is totally Paramount, but also it feels very modern in a way, even for being set in 1988, it feels like a very modern take on those movies, which is, you know, yes. that's kind of what we expect out of Platinum Dunes. But it's interesting that even for Platinum Dunes being involved, this is definitely not a sequel to the previous Platinum Dunes film, the 2009 movie. No. I mean, it is way more of a standalone movie that, uh, you know, kind of references the mythology that, you know, we 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 all know. You know, it. Uh, and weirdly enough, I'm curious to see what you think about this, but I, I think 
you could almost look at this movie as a sequel to the very first film, uh, or possibly, you know, possibly even the whole original slate of Paramount films. If you don't look too hard at it, you know, I mean, it's, it's (laughs) set in 1988, you know, so it would have taken place between like the new blood and Jason takes Manhattan. And could that still be the case? Probably not, but if you wanted to make it work, I think you could. I think technically you can make it work, considering all the big gaping holes in the franchise up until that point. I think, yes, I agree that this is sort of a sequel to the first film. It's doing the whole requel of it all before requels were truly a thing. You, it, re, it retcons everything up until the first film, and then just sort of simplifies what we already know and does a really good job. I guess when I say the original slate too, I mean like the paramount slate, like you, you can't really, this is not a Friday the 13th that could ever be related to Jason X or even, you know, like (laughs) Jason goes to hell, you know, or Freddy versus Jason, nothing like that. But when it comes to the paramount of it all, I feel like it could, it could slot into you know, it that franchise pretty, yep. pretty careful. And what, what amazed me about it, and I did a little bit of research on this and it blows me away is that, you know, Antosca's writing is excellent. Like the characters have depth and the dialogue is fun and the suspense sequences, they're intense. And the, the horror scenes are absolutely terrifying, just terrifying. And, yep. you know, he, as you noted, like he writes some really fun needle drops throughout, but what, blows my mind about that is that he wrote a single draft of this before it got axed one draft yeah this is that i know what the fuck like my goodness this is one of the best takes on friday the 13th i've ever read and you know some bitch just dashed it out you know Mm -hmm. so hats off to you (laughs) sir if you're listening out there nick yeah just obviously just a natural just a natural talented writer following his impulse probably a probably a legitimate fan as well it just feels authentic and that he just gets it and i don't know if we've ever really seen all those stars align in the same way with any of the sequels well he knows how to i i agree with you entirely it doesn't feel like a cynical cash grab of a take on a beloved horror property not that we've ever seen those before I'm not going to name any, but we know. Um, But no, he, he, you're right. I mean, it feels like it's written from a place of love, but at the same time, whether he's a died in wool Friday, the 13th fanboy or not, he's not so beholden to those original movies that he allows himself to get mired down in, you know, uh, uh, fan service or Easter eggs or, you know, all the things that keep him from writing a solid standalone movie that can invite in any, you know, potential audience member to come in and enjoy the movie. And I, that's gotta be one hell of a wire to walk. I think for a writer who's trying to resurrect a franchise like this and damn it. Like he, he slam dunked the damn thing. Yeah. He, he nailed it. And it's just so tragic that we're not going to get to see it, but honestly, this is available online for anybody to read. I don't think it's illegal. I, uh, tons of legitimate, sources have posted it so it's very easy to find and it's a really exciting experience as a friday fan to read it you know you'll never get to see it but you do get to read it if you want to and um i really recommend that you do and Josh, even if what you is don't... The, 
What does it uh-huh. take? Like ten seconds of googling to find this thing? Like it it's took not me three seconds. It's it took not me hard. Three seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not hard at all. Um, yeah, I I believe Bloody Disgusting released it in 2017. Dread Central released it. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth Franchise dot com. It's out there, so I really recommend. I recommend reading it, but if you don't want to read it, we're about to get into the nitty gritty details today, and I think we're going to have some fun doing so. Do you feel like we're ready, steady, and able to dive into the details of the script? Yeah, what the hell. So I think what I'd like to do first is just to give like a very quick overview on who these characters are, so I'll jump right in. One of our, our two lead characters of sorts are Kevin and Brad. I believe they're twins, or at least they're brothers. Good guys, nice guys, not not creeps in any way. Um, and they're these two sort of good-looking camp counselors. Uh, one of them has a girlfriend named Amber. They're kind of getting to the end of their relationship. They're going to go off in different directions. There's a character named Sloan, kind of, I think, sort of a bit of an alternative girl. Interesting, kind of introspective. There's Kirby, who I believe is like kind of conservative, a little bit religious, ultimately queer and i was so excited to see that go down we have vanessa who is a surprising character um i it's she turned out to be nothing like what i assumed she would be and i will say one of my biggest uh, criticisms of the script is on page two they describe vanessa and i thought oh no this is gonna be junk because they describe her in like the most macho bullshit way they describe her as 18 the goddess a girl most teen guys would cut off a toe to fuck and i thought oh no what are we getting ourselves into but then that's kind of the last time the script delves into gross territory from that point on it's dealing with these women quite respectfully quite well they're really likable and they're like real people they're full well-rounded people with objectives who you really root for until they're grounded into mush. Um, yeah. Are there any yeah. other characters you think we should touch base on before we did? I know. And I, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I completely get you mentioning like the Vanessa thing early on, like how she's described. And I wonder, especially given the following, what, like 103 pages, you know, where yeah. he writes very strong female characters. Gary. If, you know, like so many other things about this script that in in writing in that kind of gross way and i think there's an early scene with vanessa where uh we kind of spy on her you know taking her clothes off like mm-hmm. the window or whatever i you know obviously antoskin knows the movies that he's writing about and i i wonder if he doesn't invite us as both a reader and you know he was inviting all of the you know what was mm-hmm. hoped to be all the viewers to sort of objectify you know, the character that always gets objectified in the first, you know, pages of the script or the first minutes yep. of the movie before he sort of turns that notion on its head. You know, I mean, there are so many, he subverts like yes. all of the yes. expected tropes with this script. You know, the, the, the cool athlete isn't a jerk. You know, the, the jock is smart. The cheerleader wants to be seen for more than just being beautiful. The religious girl isn't judgy and is maybe a little more curious and experimental than one yep. would imagine. Uh, the cynical smart ass might just be a hero, you know, a um, stoner. We don't judge him for being a stoner. He's just a yeah. stoner. He's every and everybody smokes with him. You know, he's, yeah. he's yes. not the soul. And that's what I love too, is that all the things that, you know, uh, a more conservative take on, 
and slasher movies back in the 80s might look at as being like, you know, all these sins that get them killed in the first place here. You know, the script presents all of that, but it does it, you know, much as we would in real life, which is, you know, we don't really judge. We don't really see that as being a bad thing. You know, everybody passed the joint already. Yeah. You know, it's totally. the script really takes its time to in making us care <laughs> about these characters and their relationships. There are no cardboard cutouts here. Exactly. I mean, there there are a couple of characters that we don't spend a whole lot of time with. But mm-hmm. I, I, I can honestly say that there are no characters in the script. I didn't think personally where, you know, they're, they're a cardboard cutout and we just can't wait to watch them knock down. You know, we are no toss away characters are totally right. No, Even the we, ones we don't spend much time with, you, we're aware we just don't know them that well, but they come across as real people. Yeah. And we're not, we're, we aren't eager to see the next creative kill. Like the deaths in this story always hurt. They and hurt. Uh, they it's it's hurt. a it's a mean mean fucking script in that it's regard. rude it's rude and the deaths are so visceral too and i can't wait to talk about some of my favorite ones um i guess we, we, we got so close to rounding up all of the characters that i might as well just finish them off um we have frank who's the sort of groundskeeper and he's in his 40s he knows a little bit more about pamela Voorhees and jason than everybody else there's Nicole, who's the camp nurse who does not give a fuck about the health of the children, and it's pretty funny. Duckworth, the late 20s head counts counselor. An interesting red herring character by the name of Linda King, um, who we'll talk about later. Dylan, the hot local boy. And then, of course, Jason Voorhees. It's funny that you mentioned Frank, and there is something... Uh, so he's kind of like the groundskeeper, right? He's groundskeeper mm-hmm. Willie for uh, not Camp Crystal Lake in the beginning of this. And what's weird is, you know, talking about subverting the tropes, like this is a guy because of everything that he knows, like sort of the backstory that he fills in all of our characters on, you know, you get the feeling that this is the guy who should be crazy Ralph, right? Yes. But like he, sh- he should be the harbinger. And instead, like, again, turning that notion on its ear, this isn't a guy who's warning all of our teens way, you know, shouting, you're all doomed, you know, like, he, no, he's joining in. He literally takes them to the doorstep of he Jason takes the Voorhees. Joint. Yeah. You know, and it's like, he's like, whatever, let's do it. And you're he's right cool. about like, uh, oh, the nurse to the nurse is like, when you were reading the script, did you totally get like an Aubrey Plaza vibe from her? Oh, I didn't, but I, now I do. hundred <laughs> percent. Like that's yeah. totally, she's they would have cast like, kind of high and like kind of horny and like, doesn't give a shit. And I love her. I love her for it. She was pretty funny. And you're right about Linda King. Linda King to me is maybe the one aspect of the script that I wish had gotten another pass or a second draft on, because I think that character is fascinating for all of the things that we as a reader might imagine she is. Yeah. But we literally never find out anything. We don't get much about her. So Linda King is this very eccentric woman in her 50s that we meet in town that remembers Pamela Voorhees and remembers Jason Voorhees and comes across as very suspicious and kind of serves the Pamela Voorhees trope. To the degree where I thought, oh, like, is she something, is she connected to the killings? But then, no, she doesn't turn out to be. She she fights back and does get murdered. So. And she has an artificial arm, and we're meant to wonder, like, <laughs> true, is she, she a survivor? Like, Which would have been she... so much more interesting. And she does get bludgeoned with her own artificial arm, which I thought was... Just this script in a nutshell. Mean script. Mean, mean rude, script. Rude, rude, rude. But you're right. There is, it. It's funny you mentioned Red Herring. There is a sequence uh, 
near the end where our our heroes are on the run from Jason and they take refuge in Linda King's house and she's there. And there's just like this weird vibe in the house where they're like, just the way she invites them in. It, it's totally the moment where uh, Sally Hardesty runs into yes. like the uh, Pamela. The, yes. The station and, or yeah, you're right. Like, uh, you know, when our, when our final girl runs into uh, Pamela's arms in Friday the 13th, it's that moment where, Oh, you know, we're saved. And then that winds up biting them on the ass, except you're here, like, mm, wait a second. No, we're not. It doesn't, you know, it, here, it, no, she wants to help and she fights. She's pretty cool. I wonder if her last name is a reference to Stephen King. I feel like it is. I have no idea, but that would be interesting. I it like would that. Be. So getting into the script itself, something that I found to be very interesting is that it doesn't have a teaser sequence. Every Friday the 13th film and almost every horror movie of all time, has a teaser, which is an opening scene with an opening scare and an opening kill to set the tone. And this son of a bitch doesn't have that. You dive right into these kids at camp and nothing really serious happens, kind of, for about 40 pages. You get right into it. You you learn who these people are. You spend some time with them. And it's the last day of camp. The kids are still there. They're about to go home. Some spooky stuff happens, but it takes a little while before any any kills or any scares really start to pop up. So it starts off, it's 1988, it's the last day of camp, kids are going home, shop is closing up, and our cast of main characters are learning about the legend of Pamela Voorhees and the legend of Jason Voorhees. It's very that scene from Friday the 13th part two, where Paul is, you know, telling the story of Jason around the campfire. And we learn that just on the other side of the lake from where they are is the original camp crystal Lake where Pam Voorhees was uh, the lunch lady. And then we learn all about how her son died because the counselors weren't paying attention. And then I believe a year later she comes back and just randomly quietly kills all of these teenagers and some of our teens are like well it's just a fucking old lady i could have smacked her she'd be dead and um i forgot who says it maybe one of the locals says she would have killed you like before you even knew she was coming she was quiet and i thought "Ooh, she was quiet um so i I really loved that they take our our group on a tour of the old camp crystal lake which is uh their biggest mistake and they're over there and they're looking around and i believe one of our characters i think it was greg you know starts stupidly shouting inappropriate things about pamela and jason and really disrespecting the land and this is like this is our jock who is smarter than he looks jock character but he's also like unhinged in an interesting way and i and i think he's like kind of love lauren and i think that kind of anxiety and rejection is sort of it's making him act out i think a little yeah, bit yeah i could see that and he's saying some nasty stuff like he was talking about like jizzing on her grave and like they're going real edge lord with it oh i think and he's it, like he is the one responsible for yeah he's he's the reason they're all dead truly so fuck you um and i said i want to talk 
Yeah, way to go, Greg. It's always a Greg. And then I want to ask you about it, because one of my favorite sequences in the entire script is when they leave, is when they finally, it starts to rain, it starts to thunder, they lose track of Frank, the groundskeeper, and there's only one uh, canoe, the other canoe is missing, so two of them have to walk back, and the rest take a canoe. Do you want to, like, sort of paint a picture for what the sequence looked like? Sure. So initially, okay, so our lead, or the guy who's presented as our lead, a, uh, I believe he is noted as being a young John Cusack type. His name is Kevin. Yeah. Uh, his brother is Brad, and he is in love with Vanessa, who is like the gorgeous cheerleader type. Uh, and she is kind of sweet on the local townie guy named Dylan, who has accompanied them all out to uh, the original Camp Crystal Lake. So when they start making their way back... Uh, Vanessa and Dylan sort of head off into the woods by themselves. We'll just walk, you know, and you can sort of see the pain on Kevin's face where he's like, you know, any possibility he had at wooing her, you know, that door slammed shut in his face. And uh, so off they go. And, you know, there's this uh, kind of sweet sequence in a, was it like a rundown gazebo, something like that? Yes, I love it. Written as being almost like this fairy tale moment where, you know, they're, they're, you know, they both set aside their shirts, you know, they, uh, you know, they're making out or whatever, but instead of being like the, you know, kind of, let's be honest, like a traditional crass, you know, sex scene in a Friday the 13th movie, like the scene ultimately kind of goes sort of sweet. You know, we find out that Vanessa is, you know, maybe not as experienced as Dylan or, you know, even audience members might've expected she was. Mm -hmm. So rather than him being an asshole about it, he's understanding and he's telling her, you know, he tells her like, Hey, okay, tomorrow night we'll go on a date, like a traditional date. I'll pick you up at nine. And it's just, again, it it goes to subverting like what we expect out of a scene like that. And they get she's the one that's like, can we actually keep like fooling around? And he's like, no, let's, let's hang out tomorrow. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a, again, another fun spin on what we expect. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they get clothed and head off into the woods and, uh, eventually they have to split up. She's headed back towards camp. He's headed the other way. And what I think is so fun. And this is the first moment in the script where Antosca really starts dialing up the tension. We follow both characters. We keep intercutting between them. And they're both hearing strange sounds. And we know that there's only one stalker that we've seen flitting about in the darkness. And so we know that one of them is in dire trouble here. We just don't know which one. And eventually Vanessa makes it back to camp. And sadly, poor Dylan runs right into Jason. And what I love about it is that, okay, our other group that sort of took off in the canoe they had to do so because Frank, the the groundskeeper, presumably took the other one and hightailed it out of there for some reason, right? But they come across that canoe in the middle of the lake, and it's empty. And so we don't know what happened to Frank. And then when it comes to Dylan's death, we see it happen. We see him about to be murdered, but we, you know, there's no gore. There's no creative set piece. There's no kill. It's all very you know, borderline Hitchcockian where we get to Mm -hmm. that moment and then we have to cut away. And so the script is very smart and sort of teasing us like, look, we're watching, well, we're reading, but we would have been watching a Friday the 13th movie. We know what to expect from these movies. And yet they're, they're holding that carrot just out of reach. And I, I love that. I love how they treat Jason in the script. I love that. 
I say they, I love how Nick Antoska treats Jason in the script. He, he doesn't just show him right off the bat. It, it, it almost treats him like, uh, He's the xenomorph and alien. You know, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't make his first kill. He doesn't. Well, that we see he doesn't kill Dylan until 34 pages in. Yeah. And you don't even see him kill. In exactly. fact, he doesn't kill him at all. He grabs him, presumably dragging him to another location. Yeah. And I mean, we don't, you know, spoilers. I'm skipping ahead here, but we do not see Jason Voorhees in this Friday the 13th story with his mask on machete in hand. Until page 65, you know, and the script doesn't even refer to him as Jason Voorhees throughout the bulk of it anyway. Like it, it, the end. it refers him, uh, refers to him as the huge man. It refers to him as the killer, you know, it the all the killer, way up until yeah. page 99. And I, I will not spoil that. We'll get to that. But it's there a, reveal, is a moment sort of, where yeah. it's like, okay, this is Jason now. Like, yeah, and, and they really, they, they spell it out. It's very poetically drafted the script itself it's really quite an experience to read it um so too did their interest in what they were developing and it's like well this could still be a good movie you know you you don't have to throw away the found footage jason movie because you know paranormal activity is on the wane now you don't have to throw away friday the 13th 3d because you know 3d horror is you know not what it used to be a few it just just make the damn thing already i know it's so sad it's so sad. Although it would have been a good title as Friday the 13th part 13 because technically this would have been the 13th film. I did not even realize that. Yeah. I may actually call this episode that. I have yet to decide. Um, so yeah, what we're just describing I think is one of my favorite scenes in this in this script. We have this really spooky, very atmospheric moment of a bunch of our characters taking a canoe across the rainy Camp Crystal Lake, seeing the abandoned canoe getting tense. And then you also have these two people in the woods. And it's as you were saying, it's very Hitchcock. One going one way, one going the other. We don't know who's in danger until it's obvious. Um, if it's okay with you, I kind of want to jump forward to, I think it's uh, this, the next death. So technically it's the second death, but it's the first violent death that we see on screen. And it's one of my favorites in the film. We have Duckworth, who's the head counselor, and he's kind of having like a sexy scene with the nurse. And um, he goes outside. I think he hears a noise. I forget what the specifics are. But there is this kind of very Friday the 13th semi-off-screen fight where you, you, you are sort of with Nicole and you see just in the background, just a bit of a detail, that there is a struggle happening. And then you cut to the struggle and you see Jason or this big bulking character pulling this, this male counselor towards the woods as he's screaming and crying for help. And we learned earlier that this counselor sort of uses one specific uh, shovel for like, I forget what he was doing, digging for some reason. And so the shovel comes back and Jason gets this guy on the floor, gets him facing upwards, chest up. And he gets this fucking shovel, points it at this guy's chest, takes his foot, and stomps it down into his chest, just like he's digging a hole. And you don't see it up close. You see it from a wide shot from far away, which almost makes it more realistic, more like you're watching something terrible in real life. And it's so good. I wonder what your thoughts on that death were, Jason. 
when he described that the uh, the 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 sort of killing blow was going to be witnessed like far away, you know, we weren't uh-huh. going to be right there. It wasn't going to be in your face. When he described that, I was like, ah, oh, what a loss this movie was. Like that would have been so terrifying and so chilling <laughs> to have that moment where it's like, okay, we know what's going to happen. You know, the 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 shovel is going to go into the fake chest and the red blood is going to well up and you know, whatever. But by uh-huh. cutting far away, you know, and watching it like, yeah, it just, it would have been chilling. And I love that the script kind of strikes that tone early on. Like it feels, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it feels fairly realistic. It feels like it's approach to Jason is, you know, kind of much like the one in the 2009 movie in a way, you know, I mean, Jason's just a guy, you know, albeit a crazy stalky slashery one, but Mm -hmm. I love, and again, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit and, you know, I don't want to spoil too much at once, but as the script goes on, there are all of these little hints that something supernatural might be going on. And I was wondering if you want to get into that yet or... Yeah, we definitely can. Okay. So tell me if you agree with my interpretation of it. There are moments where you see Jason and he's like leaking water. And this is before we see the extent of how powerful, how fast, how strong Jason is. You like see him and he kind of feels like, yeah, like he's been soaked underwater for years and years and years and that he just is like this like creature from the black lagoon in a certain way and then he starts killing people and it's like inhuman speed inhuman strength just like jason always is but the more they kill him the more they shoot him in the head the more he falls apart the faster bigger stronger he gets it almost kind of feels a little bit like what happens in the unmade halloween four script where like like the the more people sort of see michael the larger he gets and it kind of has like a bit of a yeah like a cerebral quality to it how how do you feel about that yeah i mean it's it's interesting how we sort of piece together exactly what kind of jason we're getting in this movie you know uh again you know we we only kind of see him in the dark or in quick flashes or at a distance, you know, we, we can't at quite, first, yeah. you know, place them at first. And, um, a, a even, and I love the fact that, you know, there is kind of a Michael Myers aspect to him and that, um, the script or, well, the movie would have never called attention to it directly. And the script points out that it shouldn't, but I love that. Um, if you pay attention closely enough, you'll realize that Jason is wearing Frank, the groundskeeper's clothes. Oh. So you just, you just kind of have to make of that what you will. Oh, and, I didn't catch that. And uh, you're right. Like he's, he's leaking water as he walks through the camp and it's not like he's, he's leaving a trail behind him necessarily. And they mentioned that fairly late in the script, but there is just a moment where it's like, hmm. he, he should be dry. He's wearing like, you know, but nevertheless, water seems to be you know just welling out of him here and there like out of his pores and what the fuck is going on there and then uh you know there's a sequence with uh sloan who is kind of our uh our wry cynical you know 
Yeah. Uh, you, you know, maybe final girl, maybe not. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like a character like her definitely wouldn't have been a final girl back in the eighties, but I love that she might have a fighting chance in this modern script. And, uh, Kevin, you know, who I mentioned is kind of our John Cusack type in this script. Of course, he's uh, he's in love with Vanessa. And when he realizes that he never stand, he will never stand any shot with her, basically. Sloane sort of like steps in and just kisses him. And that leads to, you know, uh, uh, a love scene between the two. And then they wake up the next morning and she tells him this dream that she had uh, that almost seems like an evil you know, she talks about basically, it sounds like surreal, like you would expect a dream would be, but being a fan of Friday the 13th and knowing horror movies, we know that her dream is very much sort of hinting at what's to come. And it's like, well, okay, is that just a dream or is there something more going on here? And uh, mm-hmm. the script doesn't really go full supernatural, I don't think, until you know closer to the end yeah definitely closer to the end like the moment where uh i think they note at one point that jason is actually taking a licking at one point you know our heroes have fought back they've injured him yeah. he's yeah. not as fast he's not as yeah strong they hit him with now. the car at one point yeah. yeah and so he stalks into the lake and when right. he comes out he's he's stronger and faster and meaner. And it's like, he's recharged. Yeah. Know? There's something about the lake that. It, yes. Yeah. And yes. It, it, it's healed him up, which I think is kind of interesting. And, uh, and mm-hmm. obviously like all the, 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 the hits that you've taken, it doesn't matter if it slows him down or not. Like this son of a bitch is pretty much impervious to harm. And so we know like just bit by bit, by bit, by bit, by bit throughout the course of the script that, you know, this is not merely a man, like something else is going on here. There's and something else going on. Yeah. And, and all then, of his all of his kills are like collected at the bottom of the lake too. That's it. Which yes. feels supernatural. I love that. Yes, there's this. Uh, so Antosca describes a sequence where, um, oh, was it uh, uh, Kirby? Yes. Who, we should talk a little bit about Kirby. Josh, do you want to do you want to cover Kirby's arc, as it were, in the script? Yeah, I, I've been meaning to talk about Kirby, especially since we were getting into the Sloan character. So Kirby. And like all the other characters that we're talking about is definitely a, a, like an interesting subversion of a trope where you think she's going to be this uptight, conservative, religious girl. But as it goes on, we learn a little bit more about her and her character sort of crests with this moment where she has a moment of queerness by kissing Sloane. And while Sloane doesn't necessarily have the same feelings for her or isn't necessarily queer, it's a really beautiful moment. And it's authentic, and it feels real. And these characters share this brief, and I guess kind of vague, moment of queerness in a Friday the 13th film. But we've never had that before. You've never seen it before without it being pure male gaze. And this time around, it's not. It's touching. And it actually made me a little bit emotional thinking, like, wow, like we could have had a moment of, like, an important queer moment in a Friday the 13th and it still has not happened yet. And I'm really waiting for it. Yeah. It, that is such a great moment when she, uh, she sort of kisses her uh, out of nowhere. And so Sloan's yeah. response to that was just sort of like, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I like guys, but Hey, I'm impressed. You I'm know? impressed. <laughs> yes. Which I like, you know, cause it was brave and this character is not really one that, that we 
know to be brave, that we know to exist outside of her comfort zone. And then all of a sudden she is. She also has a very scary death where she is on a floating dock in the middle of Crystal Lake. And Jason just walks into the lake and just like presumably walking slowly at the bottom of the lake as we see his his um, air bubbles sort of walking towards her. And so all she can do is jump off the dock and swim to the shore as fast as she can. And it's not fast enough. He grabs her and pulls her under and drowns her. It's pretty scary. And that's where you see the uh, the underground layer, as it were, in the lake, yeah. where uh, I think it would have made for this. Uh, well, it, it, like you noted, it's where he keeps the bodies of his victims, but they're sort of trapped within the weeds. And- it feels supernatural. It kind of feels like that moment with the dead souls in Lord of the Rings in the swamp. There's something about it that feels very spooky. Yeah, I mean, and that's such a terrifying moment when uh, Kirby is dragged under, and that's the last sight that she has. Not only Jason dragging her down, but she looks around and she is surrounded by the floating bodies, the floating trapped bodies of her friends. Like, it would have, the way he writes it, it would have made for such an incredible tableau, I think. Yeah, because all of these slashers usually do that moment in such a boring cheesy way where the final girl goes into like i don't know the, the kitchen and and all of her friends just swing out of nowhere out of like out of the out of the fridge but no this they do it in a really unique way um and that i believe is when the shit really hits the fan and in the middle of the day all right like pure daytime horror we get we get all of the mayhem and all of the carnage and like i would say most of the kills, most of the grotesqueness in this film happened in bright daylight, which is so audacious and so cool. And Tosca even skips through nighttime sequences. Like the the passage of time happens at night so that we can get back to daylight. Yeah. So that there can be more daylight kills. Like that is just incredible to me. Um and yeah, I mean, one of the, you're right, like the, this is probably, okay, so we're talking about this script while it's still operating within the bounds of what we would expect from a Friday the 13th movie. And within that, even then, this is still very ultra-violent, very crazy. Um, we 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 get a sequence where, uh, you know, Jason just starts slaughtering all of our heroes, the characters who should have been untouchable, Kevin. Our John Cusack, our hero, like the guy who, you know, the nerdy, awkward, but well-meaning, handsome kid who finally finds love. Like, this is the guy who's going to make it through. No. And he does not make it through. Not only does he not make it through, but, and I, I, I wouldn't say that the script is crass, but it makes a point with how violent and awful his death is that, Hey, whatever you're expecting out of this story, like what, whatever you think you knew about this type of tale, like that, that's all gone. Like anybody can be killed now. Like nobody is safe. Poor Kevin gets swung against a tree, which has to be a nod to the, uh, you know, the sleeping bag death, uh, uh-huh. from the previous franchise, but he gets swung against a tree and just broken badly like his spine his legs like his ribs and then jason steps over him and just sort of unceremoniously puts the machete in his head 
And that's it for who we thought yep. was our hero. And right in the middle of the day, all of his friends just right there watching, screaming, begging Jason not to do it. Oh, we neglected. I, th- this is my bad. I should have mentioned this too. Like one of the craziest kills. You know, we talk about like Friday the 13th. We think creative kills. There are a few in this. Like some of them are just straight up brutal, but some of them are, you know, creative in the way that we would have expected the old series to be, but they're never fun. I don't think in, okay. So I'm thinking of is Weezer, the, uh, the, the, the stoner oh, character, right? I'm really glad that you brought that up. I, we have to talk about this. Do, do you want to take it or do you want me to? Because it's, it's, it's something. <laughs> I'll let you take it. Okay. So Weezer goes and gets high on this little like water slide. And it's nighttime and he falls asleep and his head is sort of hanging over the side. And we think, okay, I can see where this is going. That guy's going to lose his head. Jason's going to happen across at any point. And you know, that's, that'll, that'll be all she wrote for Weezer. And, uh, that's not what happens. He wakes up the next morning. He sort of yawns, he stretches and, you know, he sees the lake and I'm sure it looks pretty inviting, you know, and would definitely be one hell of a way to wake up, I think. So he, he sort of puts himself into this covered slide and down he goes. And right before he reaches the end, Jason Voorhees machete pops up through the bottom of this damn slide and he hits it full force. And it describes now if this were like an 80s slasher movie, like you would see like two halves of this dude, you know, it would be like a foam dummy in in pieces popping out the other side. In this script, it describes the inside of the slide after this happens and how the blade went through Weezer's groin, but stopped like at his hips, I think something like that. And he's bleeding out and he's trying his best to get away from the machete and he's trying to pull himself up the inside of the slide, but he can't get a grip and he's freaking out. And instead of being like this fun, creative kill, it's actually really sad and upsetting and horrible and realistic and very, very realistic. And what's crazy is, is that, uh, and uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this, we never actually see Weezer's death. What happens no. is, is that Kevin, before you know Kevin meets his maker, Kevin happens across the lake and he sees two chunks of meat floating in the lake. And he runs back and grabs the others to drag them over. And he was like, I think I found lungs. He's like, I think those are lungs floating in water. And then they find more meat, which is described as like purplish. And then they find a hand and then they finally find Weezer's body. And it's just such a fucked up way to kick things. It's wild. And it's the middle of the day. And you're like, how is this? All of our characters are discovering this nastiness bright and early in the middle of the day when they can just leave and call the cops. Like, how is this going to work out? And, oh, they describe his face as like looking like it's a plastic mask, which is really scary. And this is exactly when the when Jason shows himself and subverts all expectations and just destroys everyone in the middle of the day. He runs, which is what I think was scariest about reading the script is you can imagine that moment where it's like, okay, this is the part where they all have a moment to run and hide, you know, and he's going to stalk towards them slowly and eventually pick them off one. But nope. Nope. In this one, he just races right after them. Now, there yeah. is a bit of cat and mouse later, but 
the fact that we start all this off by knowing that, hey, Jason can run and he can catch your ass if he wants to. Like, that's fucking terrifying. It's scary. And it's like, it really just depends on who he picks. It could be any of you. And if he picks you, you're dead. I love it. Yeah, that's what was interesting is like once he there's this thing with him. Once he picks somebody out of a group, nobody else matters. Like he just he he doesn't get confused. He doesn't get like, well, there is one sequence where he kind of gets called away from somebody. But for the most part, when he makes up his mind as to who he's going to whack, like nobody else is in his vision. You know, he just like beelines right toward them and then uh, does horrible things. I love it. And honestly, I do feel like we've summed up this project pretty well because it's simple it's it's not it's not trying anything out too creatively it's just really understands what it is and does it so beautifully and effectively but i do wonder in your view like how would you say this story ends (laughs) okay so after jason has picked off all of the characters that we know and love all of these characters that have had these wonderful little subplots and little arcs. I'm thinking of, uh, I believe her name is Amber, right? Um, who is, uh, who's Brad's girlfriend. Like she, you know, they, they had this kind of summer. Wow. It is raining hard outside. Apologies for that listeners. Um, but no. So Amber has this wonderful story with Brad where, you know, they had like a summer camp fling, but she wanted to do the mature thing and end it. You know, so that there wouldn't be any hard feelings later when they're off at different colleges. And he's kind of spurned by that. But eventually they have a heart to heart and, you know, they they wind up becoming friends again after his spat. And it's like just this really fun little tiny story nestled within the rest of this. And damn it all, like she winds up getting attacked, saved, and she winds up becoming this weird bit of comic relief where she's in shock and she's just sort of like commenting on all of the madness, but in a dazed straight face sort of way. Uh, I think there's a moment where uh, they try to ram Jason and they clip him, but then their, uh, their truck, their, uh, their means of escape flips over onto its side. And she has this moment that I think would have gotten a great laugh where she's like, I really hate that guy, (laughs) you know? And, but then right. That's the thing though, is that right after she gets that laugh, Jason pulls her out of the vehicle and kills her. You know, it's just awful. Um, and yeah, all of the characters kind of go that, that similar route. So anyway, so you're asking how it ends. Well, it ends pretty much like we would expect a modern redo of a Friday, the 13th movie to end. Right. So we have the three lead characters, they race through the camp at night. Jason's on their heels. They finally make it to the edge of a large property, Linda King's house. They take refuge there. Jason kicks the door in. There is a big battle amongst all of them. And Brad and Sloan and Vanessa, they are basically the last ones standing. Uh, Linda gets beaten to death with her artificial arm. <laughs> R.I.P. And these three, you know, our three kids, our three 18-year-old heroes basically give it their all and they wind up defeating Jason. And the sun comes up 
and I'm sure the music would have swelled, and it's the end of the movie, right? It's the end of the movie that we always see in a Friday the 13th movie. Uh, you know, our remaining heroes defeat Jason, the sun rises, the cops arrive, all is well. And then the movie keeps going. And it's <laughs> maybe the craziest fucking slasher set piece I've ever read in a script. Josh, do you, do you want to tackle or do you want no, me I to? No, I want you to. Okay. I want you to. So what happens is, is that our heroes are sitting in the back of an ambulance. The cops are there. They, they could kind of give a fuck, you know, they're, they're taking their notes and everything down. They don't believe half the stuff. I don't think happened that the kids said they said that did, you know, they don't believe that this guy is like this damn near unstoppable force. Jason's body is zipped up and put into a meat wagon and driven away while these kids are swearing up and down. Like he killed everybody at camp. All of our friends were, were the only ones left, blah, blah, blah. There are all these cops standing around. And then said meat wagon swerves in the distance and crashes. And then the doors burst open and out steps. You know what? I'm going to zip to the actual page of this script. I'm going to read this because it's fantastic. Okay. A beat, silence, nothing moves. The van just sits there. Sloan absently finishes her sentence. Oh, I forgot to say. So Jason was going to be introduced by way of Sloan doing the normal, like, well, I wouldn't say normal, but the iconic line, you know, the Pam Voorhees line. Uh, When the cop asks her, like, what was his name now? What was it? Was it uh, uh, Johnny? And she says, I know his name. His name was G. And then that's when the van crashes. And then, okay, so a beat, silence, nothing moves. The van just sits there. Sloan absently finishes her sentence. Jason Voorhees. Bam. The back of the van fucking flies open and the killer steps out, a.k.a. Jason. Push in slowly Mm -hmm. on the nightmare hero shot. Jason looking iconic, badass, terrifying. He's holding a fucking bone saw. Behind him, inside the van, it's covered in blood. And maybe it's just the angle, but he almost looks bigger than before, as if dying made him even stronger. Hell yeah. And then he races. We talk about him zeroing in, right? He races past all of these cops, races right toward Brad and just buries the bone saw in his head. So there goes another one of our heroes just (laughs) massacres him. And then he proceeds to slaughter all of these cops onlookers a teenager that happened by and was watching slack-jawed on the side. Jason tears through God knows how many people in this sequence. It feels like what Halloween Kills wanted their big climactic sequence to be. Totally. But actually nailing it on the page here and just being this horrible, bloody as all hell, like astonishingly violent set piece wherein Jason just lays waste to, it feels like half a fucking town. Um, and you know, at the end of it, what's kind of amazing is that, um, Oh, I should say 
there is a moment between he and Sloan. There was this uh, moment that was set up early on when they first visited the camp, the kids. Sloan found this little bracelet sort of mixed in with the, the debris, you know, the detritus in the camp. And for some reason, for whatever reason, she puts it on. And then there's this moment where he has her cornered. He has her held by the throat up against a, uh, a cop car, dead to rights. And she calls him by his name. And it's just enough to sort of stay his hand for a moment. And then she holds up the bracelet and it like gets his attention. And she keys on that. And she's like, this was your mom's, wasn't it? You know? Mm-hmm. And he sort of lets the blade down. And here's what I think is absolutely fascinating. It's the one last great bit of subversion in the script that Antosca pulls. She reaches up to pull off his mask gently. She unbuckles it. She wants to treat him like a person because she wants him to see her as a person. She wants to have that connection with him because that's the only way she's surviving this moment. And she actually thinks for a moment, oh my God, he's going to let me live. And when she pulls off that mask, it's scary. Unlike previous iterations of Jason that treat him sympathetically, it shows that this Jason is just having a blast. He's <sighs> loving tearing people apart. He's practically grinning ear to ear. The script has Sloan removing the mask. She mentions the mom. She does the bracelet. She does all of that. It's set up like a tender moment. And then when she removes the mask, the script reads, and I'm reading directly from it, Jason's face, swollen, gray, and grotesquely baby-like, dumb cow eyes. But most disturbing is Jason's expression. It is not a look of sadness. It is a look of crazed energy, almost glee. He loves this. Nope, not going to let her live. (sighs) One of the best moments. One of the scariest moments, too. Yes, and... So Sloane is pretty much a goner, except Vanessa steps in and, you know, I believe she uses one of the cops, the fallen cops, handguns or shotgun. Shotgun, yeah. To uh, to take off half of Jason's face. And so the two final girls, you know, we don't just have one final girl. We have two, which is fantastic. I love that idea. Me too. Uh, They manage to get into a vehicle. They run over Jason. And they basically get the fuck out of Dodge. They race out of town and they run over him in such a way that it should have killed anybody, but it doesn't because just gets up. Yeah. He's, he's half destroyed. Like his face, half of it is just gone. Practically he's crushed. And our two final girls escape and Jason, Jason just gets the fuck up. And, uh, and what's crazy is I, this would have been the greatest final shot any slasher movie ever had. Oh, uh, would you mind if I read it? Please, please, it's, please. It's so great. So they make it out of town, and it's exterior town, Main Street Day. The carnage they left behind. Blood pooled in the street. Broken bodies, cops, paramedics, bystanders, and Jason Voorhees. Just standing amid the bloodshed. Mask in hand, bone saw in hand. He looks around, all is well. Nothing more to do. He turns to go walking right up Main Street like he owns it, and off this last shot of Jason, walking off into the sunrise, hard cut to black, Friday the 13th title. You see? You see what you did, Greg, you son of a bitch? It's brutal. It's just, I'm emotional. I honestly am emotional, just as a horror fan right now. It's this, this 
is everything. This is a fantasy. This is everything that we want. And while we're not going to get it, it does kind of exist. And I'm, I just, I guess I'm a little bit grateful that it's out there, even just as a script. I'm just glad it's out there. Josh, we, uh, we did neglect to mention one thing about this script. Oh, it has a post credit sequence. <gasps> oh my Lord. Okay. Well, Jason, walk us through it. And then post credits over black snowflakes begin to fall exterior town, main street night, the snowy town of crystal Lake dead of winter. It's dark, eerily quiet, a ghost town, utterly abandoned except for a single set of boot prints in the snow off that fade to black. The snowy Friday the 13th tease. Is it ever going to happen? That we will never get. It will only ever be teased. We will never <laughs> actually get it. Oh, so rude. Well, maybe we'll cover it. Maybe maybe we'll make it realized on some level. Maybe not. Hard to say. I hope so. I, I hope so. <laughs> I damn it. Jinx, damn it, though. I have to ask you. I have to know, even though I know in my heart what the answer is. Are we ever going to get to see this? Is this ever going to get made? Okay, you know what? Probably not, no. But I do think, you know, because let's look at what the likelihood is. First, the lawsuit has to be over and done with. And who knows if that'll ever happen. That's thing one. Thing two, the moment it is, like, so many people are going to be running after Paramount or whoever the hell is going to make the next movie like with their own take. Right. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of established genre filmmakers who want to tackle it. I mean, fucking Stephen King tweeted once that he wanted to write a novel from Jason Voorhees point of view when he goes to hell called I Jason. Like I remember <laughs> that, that better be phone call number one for <laughs> yeah. whoever, like the moment that lawsuit is over, get Stevie King on the phone. Like, come hey, on. Babe. Yeah. I agree. Uh, you know, I mean, the the likes of Quentin Tarantino, I remember like a decade, decade and a half ago, he talked about doing like an ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. And, you know, that'll never happen. But hot damn, no. you know, but to think. Yeah. So, no, I don't imagine that this now seven year old script is going to get dusted off. Uh, but. Let's say that lawsuit is settled soon enough. And let's say David Bruckner's Hellraiser is welcomed with open arms by horror fans and mainstream, you know, movie watchers alike when it's dropped on Hulu later this year and people go nuts for it and they start singing this guy's praises and maybe that gives him enough power to name his next project. And what if he says, hey, I really want to do Friday the 13th and not just any old Friday the 13th. I want to do the Nick Antosca script from years ago, then maybe, maybe we might get it still because there is something (laughs) that's kind of timeless about the script. It's set in 1988. They can always do it as a period piece. They could have done it in 2015. They could do it in 2040 and still make the exact same story. So (laughs) you know what? I'm not going to be pessimistic on this one. The script is too damn good to just write it off. I don't care that it's easily findable out there in the world. I'm going to say maybe, maybe there's a chance. I think you're being optimistic, but that's beautiful. And I appreciate it because I'd love to see it. I'd cut off my toe to see it. No, I wouldn't. But still, You would cut off a toe to fuck this movie. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you got my reference. Because <laughs> I don't know if everyone else did, but now they do. Jason, Jinx, my friend, where can you be found on the internet? So you can uh, find my writing at Bloody Disgusting. You can find me podcasting over at Screamatics.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, that's at Jinx1981. I guess fucking Elon Musk is no longer buying Twitter, so I'm going to stay. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's at Jinx740941. And yeah, please give me a yell, folks. Love it. And we're going to see you, Jinx, and everyone else next week for our third chapter of Campus Cancelled. We'll see you then. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review.